0: Beats. Welcome, welcome, welcome To telling It Like It Is I'm your host, Matt The Godfather Ely And today, for the first time, but not the last Time, I got my co-host Baby Sis is in the house What's up sis?
1: Hi, I'm Veronica Ely, sharing the air tonight
0: Yes, yes So, I hope everybody Enjoyed our Mother's Day uh, Special and everybody had a great week um people in the Northeast, I hope you got to enjoy some of this gray weather we've had the last few days um, It's finally warming up, and it seems like summer might be here today's topic is addiction we're gonna be talking about addiction uh, mainly substance abuse um in relation to addiction it's a it's a uh huge issue today there's a lot of um you know a lot of deaths involved, overdoses. There's a lot of debate on the matter. Um, Is it a disease or a choice? Uh, I've seen a lot online. Um, So that being said, let's get into the one plus one equals two. So the one plus one equals two, the textbook definition of addiction is the fact or condition of being addicted to a particular substance, thing, or activity. The plus one. What does it mean to be addicted? Physically and mentally dependent on a particular substance and unable to stop taking it without incurring adverse effects.
1: And today we are going to follow up with the two plus two equals four of that. um, The second half of that. Is the disease aspect, and uh, many people disagree over this. Uh, The textbook definition of disease is a disorder of structure or function in a human, animal, or plant, especially one that produces specific signs or symptoms or that affects a specific location and it is not simply a direct result of physical injury. So, the American Medical Association, or the AMA, they actually classify addiction, drug addiction, as a disease. And that is where um, a lot of the disagreements fall in with this topic.
0: So MDG says this. According to the 1 plus 1 equals 2, addiction is a disease. The I understand where some people are coming from in the aspect of, you know, you see it as, well, it's a choice. And to some degree, yeah, someone makes a choice to use a substance. Uh, The the way I see it, though, is that with or what was once said to me is that. Once you know you have the disease, you have to choose to get clean, you have to make the choice to be sober. Um, So. That's, you know, in a nutshell for me.
1: Well, the the thing about the disease is that a lot of people don't like that. they A lot of people associate a disease with something that somebody doesn't ask for. So a lot of people compare it to cancer. They say, well, you know, my aunt has breast cancer and that she didn't ask her that. Whereas somebody who is addicted to heroin, they picked that. And um, where the the AMA kind of draws a line here is that uh, drug addiction is put right in the same category as a disease like uh, um, heart disease or diabetes where those can be a result of your lifestyle choices and your diet and your behaviors. So no, somebody doesn't just wake up one day with um, a drug addiction, but after the initial addiction starts, it becomes a disease because it does it actually changes the chemical makeup of your brain and at that point it, that it's not a choice anymore mm-hmm.
0: and i'm gonna add to that because so i i think in other words there's a lot of layers to addiction and how it comes about um there are genetic predispositions that happen with people um And then there is the environmental aspect. Like there may be people that have the genetic predisposition but never use and therefore it never manifests itself so they don't see it. Um, There are certain, I think, different factors, maybe um, some environmental, some different conditions like lifestyle conditions, how people deal with things. And that's not necessarily to say – you know, some people, yeah, if you've lived in a hard life or if you've come from something, you may handle things a certain way. But even just like I don't think there's a person alive that doesn't deal with some kind of stress from everyday um, functions such as work or whatever. So different things like that, I think, are what bring about or lead people into using um Not necessarily, you know, the stigma where it's always just some, you know, loser who's homeless or lives in the ghetto or um, whatever. Um, So there's so many different moving parts and aspects about how what can cause addiction to manifest itself. And some of it can be related to other diseases, other forms of mental illness. Um, But we're going to talk a lot about that in today's show. Um, I'm really excited to have... Uh, our guest that we have today. It's somebody I've known a really long time, another one of my most favorite people in the world. Uh, this guy mentored me at one point um, in, 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 in other aspects of life. Um, and he's, on top of that, he's 18 years clean. So he's a recovered air, um, addict who has a lot of knowledge. Um, I'd like to welcome my boy Yev. Welcome
2: hey thank you thank you for having me here and I am I'm very grateful to be here because this is a very hot topic right now especially like you said with all of the uh, the deaths as a result of overdoses going on it's even gotten to a national platform uh, in the political world where people that are running for office are using it as a platform and how they are going to address it Um, (coughs) excuse me and you two have brought up some interesting points that have got my wheels turning right off the bat. And you know, you're talking about um, how do you become an addict, and when do you know you, you know becoming an addict? When I was a little kid, I didn't dream of growing up and being an addict. You know, I, I one day when I was 14 years old, I smoked a joint in the playground, and and that day I bought my first bag of weed, and and it took off from there. You know, that was my gateway drug, and, I, and after that, I was a hardcore you know, addict for some 27 years.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: and and my life, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like, but my life revolved more about drugs than it did about my education and about my family and so forth. And and it, I got to a point, by the grace of God, and, and what I call a moment of clarity. You called it a choice, Veronica, where I called it a moment of clarity, where I just had that fleeting moment in the midst of all the chaos and all the drama and, and all of the swirling cesspool that my life was going to, where I just knew that if I didn't do something then, I was going to die. If I wasn't going to die, I was going to go to jail or I was going to go to prison and, and something bad was going to happen. I had to make some changes in my life. And, and I, ch- yes, made a choice in that moment of clarity to, to, to go to rehab. That was mm-hmm. my first start. I had to stop using. You know, stopping using was the first thing I had to do. And, and, and in the process of doing that, I had to learn that I had to learn to live all over again. Because I didn't know how to live without the dope. Yeah. I didn't know how to live without the drugs. I didn't know how to le- live without my crack. Because yeah. that was my drug of choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, to this day, I am grateful for crack cocaine. Because I was a hardcore alcoholic. And I smoked weed like a chimney but it was the if if i didn't get into smoking crack cocaine i'd probably would still be drinking and i'd still be smoking weed and i'd probably still be out there on the streets but the crack put me over the edge Mm. and it got me to the point where i hit a bottom oh wow okay and that bottom is what got me to that moment of clarity okay and and i i got clean for 10 months and and in that process of the 10 months of getting clean in the 12 step program you know I went to rehab got involved in a 12 step program but I was trying to obtain everything back that I had in my life prior to that but I was just setting myself up for a relapse because I was setting myself up to put myself in the same position in life to just use again and lose it all over again mm. you know and and then fortunately again I had a moment of clarity and 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 to this day, I'm so gracious, you know, for, for, you know, the 12-step program and everything that I've had to put into it. You know, the program didn't work for me. I had to work for it, you know, that someone told me right after I went in to the rehab again that the only thing you need to change is everything, people, mm-hmm. places, things. You know, the sooner you forget to remember your past, the sh- sooner you're doomed to repeat it. Yeah. And, and that's where I was you know and that's just my story but that's how cunning and baffling and powerful this disease is for everybody it doesn't matter what you're using and
1: uh and you said that you were 14 years old when you smoked your first joint so at that point in your life you're not I mean I, I'm probably sounds like I'm making an excuse and I know that there's people that will disagree with me and say that you should know right from wrong but at 14 you're a you're a kid you're a baby I was a kid and you have no idea what and, and I know people who smoked weed mu- and have done worse much younger than that so that I think it, that it goes to show that you can be you don't just start you know you don't just become an addict
0: my experience with addiction um, how I came to be there's been a a lot of people in my family like addiction is something that has plagued my family um, in multiple levels but the closest to home for me was started it was my father Um, my dad was a great husband he was a great dad I mean he was loving He 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 treated my mom amazingly he was like a pillar we went to church every sunday he was a pillar of the church he was a genius um uh, you know he, he could play any instrument he knew computers he was a computer operator back early on in the days um and i always felt very loved by my dad except for when it came to his addiction i witnessed my dad turn into like someone i didn't even know and i think i was about six years old maybe the first time that uh i realized that there was a problem um it it, it's like my dad would go from being the perfect dad the loving husband the you know the family that prays together the uh to he would just dis- disappear. Like, what he would do is he would disappear because I think my dad always knew that it wasn't something he wanted around us. So, like, he would disappear for, like, two days, three days at a time and, and binge and then show up. Um, I, I remember a couple times, like, where my mom would... This is at the point where... So, my dad explained a little bit to me about his addiction later on in life, um, because cause I meant, you mentioned smoking weed. So when we I started smoking weed about 14, and my dad would always say to me, you know, weed is a gateway drug, weed is a gateway drug. So what he did is he would take me and my brother and my cousin, our friends, he would make us go to N.A. meetings with him mm-hmm. and stuff. And, I, and I'm glad he did that, because I would hear, you know, a lot of the stories. But um, so a little bit of what happened with him was he moved to Binghamton uh he went to school, Broom Tech at the time, I think it was, and then he worked for IBM. He worked for Stone Manufacturing, where he met my mom, then he worked for IBM, then he got a job once he had his degree at Singer Link as a computer operator, and this is where he started. He would do, like, the side classes and learn things. Eventually, we moved to Houston. I was four years old then. When we moved to Houston, he went to school again, to another computer sc- school, and got another degree, and then he became a professor teaching, you know, at the computer school. Um, it was about this time where the addiction got out of control. So he said the the reason it took that long is because when he was in New York, he would use cocaine recreationally here and there. Um, he had already quit drinking because my mom basically, when she got pregnant for me, took, gave him an ultimatum that he had to quit drinking or she'd leave him because with alcohol he had the gene as he called it to me and I'm going to get into that later so it was apparent like you can't drink so when he quit drinking you know they uh it seemed like he was okay and he would on occasion he you know he played music in the in the local scene he said he would use cocaine from time to time recreationally and it, and it, it didn't become a problem yet. He said when he moved to Houston that the purity of the cocaine there was so different that he it, it, it hooked him and he would use ridiculous amounts and just binge on it and it, and that's when he lost his job um he at that point in time uh my mother was maybe 20 24 years old, Irish Catholic, so you know, she didn't believe in birth control, so by the time she was 24, my parents had five, there was five of us, it was me, my brother, my two brothers and my two the two older girls um, and so, he lost his job and hit rock bottom the first time um, and went into rehab, and when that happened for my mom my mom, like As a result, like, had a nervous breakdown. She, Because at that point, my dad was a sole breadwinner. My mom didn't have a degree. She was a stay-at-home mom from the time I was, like, two. Um, Has a nervous breakdown, and we end up in foster care, me and my siblings. So I watched, you know, we went through the foster care. I watched my dad go through rehab, and then they... Pick up the pieces, slowly build up our life, build up our life, rebuild their life. And my dad, being you know a smart, charismatic dude, got himself another good job. Now he was working, and he he went to school again, got another certification. I remember he was always doing these like learning different computer codes and certifications. Um, and he got a job working for Exxon, the oil company designing uh like the the computerized map like what eventually led to what is Google, the GPS we have now they started it because they would use it to map out where they could drill my dad was involved in that um and eventually what happened was my dad lost that job not from using again but he, he became schizophrenic as a result of the amount of cocaine that he used and and, and they were it was a common with people who abused cocaine that they would become schizophrenic. So he ended up having to go on mental disability and he would still work, but like under the table, not in his field, he had to do like sales stuff. and what would happen is he didn't use cocaine anymore, but now because he had a, my dad had a legitimate back problem from way back when he had, was in a car accident, he would take pain pills. And as I would come to learn and he would come to tell uh, me, explain to me, he's an addict. So for him as an addict, it's like everything is he. And so he started abusing the pain pills. Um, There was even a portion where he would abuse my brother and I. I had ADD and my brother had ADHD. So we were on Ritalin as kids. There was even a point in time where I remember he started he would abuse those like we would have to hide our medicine. So he would have these bouts with his addiction. Throughout, it was just he would shift from one, you know, he never, we, we didn't, never spiraled back into the darkest time, was, w- was which was when he battled um, his cocaine addiction. But he would, like, relapse with pills, and then he would go back and have to start over, and um, he uh, finally got the surgery on his back, because I remember him telling me, he's like, you know, this is something that... um I can't have control of my life. I can't have so he's like, if I get this surgery and I fix it, and I get this fixed, then I can take control of my life again. And he would always warn me, you know, this is the, one of the things I always love my dad for, and I credit my dad to this day. I've never once done cocaine, thought about it, been close to it, been surrounded by it, been involved with it. Never once have I did it, and I and it's because of my father, because my dad always told me, whatever you do, don't ever use. Don't ever do coke. Don't ever do narcotics um, because us, genetically, it will ruin you. So um, even though he decided that, I think um, he got the surgery, and post-surgery he was supposed to be taking it easy. And as I said, because of his tolerance to the pain pills, he had built such a high tolerance to the pain pills that these are pills you're supposed to take like one because he had built such a high tolerance to the pain pills um as a result of being an addict you know he'd take a whole bottle when you're in a day when you're supposed to take like maybe three a day or four a day um and as a result he would have seizures and this wasn't new because he this was happening to him prior to the surgery So we knew that this was something that had, uh, you know, had to happen. I mean, he cheated death once because he had a seizure. Not only did he cheat death, but he dropped my sister off at school. And like minutes after he dropped my sister off at school and was driving back, he had a seizure while driving. The car flipped over six times. He was ejected from the car. He had to be life flighted to the hospital. That was a point where he was like, I have to get this fixed. So he knew that he had to get it fixed. And here he is. He has a surgery. And he takes pain pills and has one of those seizures. But now he has it when he just had the surgery. And that, it, you know, as a chain of events, he wasn't able to breathe. And, and he ended up dying. So it literally, my dad, at the end of the day, he ended up dying as a result of his addiction. And and I believe that I, that's there's no doubt in my mind that that's the case. So that was kind of my introduction to um, addiction. I don't know, sis, Veronica, you got...
1: I know. I remember, even though I was a little kid, I remember that. I just, my whole life pretty much grew up knowing that drugs are bad. And I saw what they could do. And I think I was probably in... um, I I think I was maybe like nineteen or twenty when I realized that our dad's death was because of his addiction. Cause I mean, I think people kinda sugarcoat it and say, well, it was this or that, you know, medical terminology. But the bottom line is it was it was the pills and the that, you know, that put him over. So I grew up with that over you know, with that knowledge and I learned from that and I never ever would mess around with drugs, but you have people who grow up without that con- like you know it's not normal for a 6-year-old to know that, you know, what drugs can do. But your and your average kid grows up in a totally oblivious. And so that's why I think that um, you know, you're when you're a teenager, you just you you think you're invincible and you think you can try things and you don't think about the consequences and now with the prevalence of the of opioid abuse and the overdoses I think now we're you know it's a like a national topic I think now kids are aware but it wasn't probably up till five years ago until people were talking about it like you you need to tell your kids when 10 years old they need to know you can't wait until your kids in high school. You can't wait until they they try drugs. So not everyone, as tragic as it is to lose your parents, not everyone is as fortunate to grow up with that with that tough knowledge. And I think that's why I'm I'm you know never dabbled. I I don't I have no curiosity about drugs. I will I've learned from watching and not everyone has that. Some people want to find out for themselves and that doesn't, that doesn't make them bad people. Just makes them human, you know, humans are curious and some things you can't, you can't go back from. So Mm -hmm. I think that's an important uh, place to start. We're um, talking about uh, the public opinion of addicts and addiction in general, um, how, how we view it and how we talk about it. And, uh, a lot of people who don't have um, personal experience with addiction and uh, maybe aren't as uh, sympathetic to it can they people tend to lash out in anger and judgment people are very harsh uh, you know addicts should just go ahead and off themselves and you know I hope you all, all you know just get it over with already and i think that kind of um mentality actually does more harm than good and i think maybe you, maybe these people think that they're protecting themselves from the pain of um a relationship with an addict or whatever it may be but i mm. think that's very detrimental to any progress we might make absolutely
0: yeah but i want to ask you so tell tell us a little bit about the the development how did your how did your addiction start how did walk us through the road like where it began and where it, where it got to.
2: Well, <clears throat> well as I stated before my first joint I smoked was when I was 14 years old and that was in the uh, schoolyard and my f- sophomore year freshman year of high school and I was going to a Catholic high school at the time and I had a lot of I, I, I identify myself as a recovering Catholic as well as a recovering addict, okay? <laughs> Me and, too. Okay? We share that in common. And, and I, I, I honestly have a lot of non-trauma in my background, <laughs> yeah. okay? We have and, and, common. and I had, it was, I could remember it vividly like yesterday. And I was in the playground. There were other people that used to go to this one spot that, you know, later became friends of mine that would go to the same spot every day between these cars out in the back by the bushes you know the scene and they would smoke a joint and I was thinking about it for days because I always had to go to this one nun's class after that you know that lunch period and and she always stressed me out she gave me major stress because I this the, the class was hard for me and she always picked on me and I trembled when I would walk through the door going into that class. And this particular day, I decided I was going to take a couple puffs. You know. And, and they offered. I said yes. I took a couple puffs. I went into that classroom. I sat there. And I was in a little bit of a zone. You know? And I didn't shake. I didn't tremble. I felt a little brave. I, I you know, was able to cope. I didn't have to feel. I didn't have to feel that stress and that, you know, discomfort. And and I liked it, you know, and that day I bought my first bag of weed on my way home. And that same day I went to my first Burger King, man, where you could have it your way. And I had like <laughs> two whoppers, you know. But but I'm not gonna glamorize it, you know. That's how it all started. I didn't have to feel, I didn't have to cope. And the things that made me uncomfortable in my life, there, were, my my chemistry changed that day, just on the weed, you know, and and that's where it all began, but, uh, that's that was my that was my gateway into into the world of, of drugs. Even though, and what was
0: the next substance you used? Cocaine. After? And how long was it between when? Well, you-
2: couple years, just a couple years. And I was at a party, and someone offered. And it was a similar experience, but to a different type of euphoria, obviously. Um, Cocaine being a stimulant, you know, I felt like I've never felt before. I felt like I had a self-esteem, and I felt like I had new friends, and I was popular. And my brain chemistry, and looking back in retrospect... You know, I wanted to feel that way more because I felt accepted. I felt, you know, I was a little chubby guy, man. I was just a little chubby guy, and I I didn't have as many friends as I would have liked to have had. I mean, when you're in school, you want as many friends as you can get when you're in high school, for God's Mm -hmm. sakes. You know what I mean? But um, I I just had that feeling that I didn't have before, and I liked it, and I wanted more, and I started putting things second to my want for the drugs and that escalated as time went on Mm -hmm. to the point as the years went on where I had a great job and a great company and I flunked out of college before that let me back up you know because I was doing more cocaine you know I wasn't smoking it yet I was snorting it Mm -hmm. and and you know i would care more about. i'd get my paycheck and spend most of it on cocaine and fill my gas tank of my car and buy ramen noodles for a week and the rest of it went to dope right. you know um i would throw my bills in the garbage you know i'd help you i'd steal your wallet and help you find it mm. you know that mm-hmm. was me mm-hmm. um and i couldn't stop I, I, you were talking about how the brain chemistry changes yeah. And, and it is, and that's where I think the disease concept comes in because you're totally rewired. Absolutely. And you really don't know it until you do get, until you stop.
1: Mm-hmm. Like yeah. right
2: now, I'm 18 years clean, but I'm not out of the woods. Mm-hmm. You know, I deal with it every day, but I have to choose, like I said, to change my change everything i don't go around those people anymore i don't put myself in situations or go to parties or clubs mm-hmm. where somebody's putting out lines or or you know put myself in a position and how
0: long was it so let's so let's let's go back to that so you you went you sm- you went two we- two, two years you smoked pot and then after that you had your first line of cocaine and how many years did it develop to Before where i smoked yeah, yeah. Like, how was the process? You know, you started out, you said you started out, well, you're hanging with friends. In between,
2: there was, in between there, like, cocaine was my drug of choice.
0: Cocaine was my drug of
2: choice. Mm-hmm. But I did so many different, I did LSD. I traveled around with the Grateful Dead for years. I, I did LSD. I did peyote buttons. I've done uh, crystal meth. Um, I, my favorite drug was more for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was... My coping mechanism Mm. you know and uh i i was all about not wanting to feel Mm -hmm. because feeling sucked Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. life wasn't good unless i wasn't feeling and that's you know where the drug the drugs were able to take me Mm -hmm. you know and um
0: when was the first time you think it got to a point where you were like where your surroundings or your family or people outside of people that were using with you were, were like, you know, mentioned or started to notice that it was a problem.
2: Oh, I started, uh, like my folks would go down South for the winter and they'd come back to an empty house with no furniture and I sold everything in it, you know, and, and, and I got thrown out the first time I got And <laughs> arrested How, how, we, how old were you the, at um, that point? Well, let me think because it happened a couple times mm-hmm. um the first time it happened i was already divorced and had a child and had no results to go so they let me back in the house mm. and i did it
0: so you did had the it. problems in the and the do you, was your, you you think was your divorce a result of your Actually addiction?
2: actually actually i went through about a 2 or 3 year period where i slowed down a lot and i was just snorting then. I was just snorting then, and uh, just snorting. Listen to me minimizing it. That, uh, you know that's... Yeah, right. You know, no, I'm, but, I'm sitting here I, minimizing but, no, it. No, but it's good that yeah, you
0: say that because a lot of people, that's the way they see it while they're doing it, and I think it's kind of good. I like to hear that you narrate it from the perspective of the mindset you were you were in at that. You know, point
2: in time. I might I might buy a, a half a gram or a gram a week, which is like a hundred bucks worth of cocaine at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, but I'd have ounces and ounces of weed and roll joint after joint after my wife would go to bed, mm-hmm. you know, and I'd go down in the basement and I'd minimize that and say, oh, I didn't have a problem. But you know what? In retrospect, I had a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and, but and I shouldn't sit here and laugh about it.
1: But at the time, it, you, that was your normal.
2: It was, it was much less for me. Yeah. It was, it was cut back mm-hmm. because like you said, it was my normal. It was me behaving. Right. That's how sick I was. Mm -hmm. See, I was sick, but I wasn't getting as sick as sicker. Like I could have been. Yeah. You know, like like right now, I'm an addict in recovery, and I am sick, but I'm not getting sicker because I'm not using. Right. Um, for the better part of 27 years, I was sick and getting sicker. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of kind of goes along with with mom and dad when you said that they compromised where he had to quit drinking because the drinking was the most obvious. And Mm -hmm. I think that that just goes to show you when you, when you're in it and you're just trying to, especially like, you know, if you think about it from the perspective of a significant other dealing with that, you know, it's takes a toll on not just the addicted person, but the family members and, Those spouses. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So in in that situation, when you're married to somebody, what do you, you either leave or you try and fix it.
0: Codependency.
1: And it's.
2: They call it. Well, you know, it was all my fault. But at the time, and she said, you know what, I didn't, I didn't look at my life being this way. And, you know, I'm going to take, I'm not going to say, but my daughter's name. And, and I think it's time for us to move on. Mm-hmm. And I got all defensive, like what I do? you know? I mean, I did everything cool, you know, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I could mm-hmm. say that now, op- you know, wholeheartedly and admit it. Yeah, and, right. and I learned from it and Emma, Emma, do I regret it? Absolutely, but I've made amends for it because right. that's part of me healing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I've had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you were talking about how, Veronica, you were talking about how um, you and Matt were talking about the, the, the family thing and your dad and about, like, the foster care. And, and you know, I, I want to commend you guys for bouncing back. You know, you guys are both productive members of society. You know, it thank has you. not hit you, man.
0: It's a My matter of opinion, pe- but thank you. I, I value yours, you're so that means a lot. You're good and productive <laughs>
2: members of society and stuff, and you were exposed – To this firsthand one of the catalysts of me getting clean besides cleaning out my folks house again and and having feeling that shame and having that moment of clarity again was I was in a crack house slash shooting gallery right and I'll never forget this as long as I live you know before I got clean to where I am today and there was a woman that brought her little three-year-old daughter into this place and and she had her daughter and her daughter had her little toy bag and she was shooting up, the mom, right, and the, and the little daughter. I'll never forget this as long as I live. She took her little red Crayola crayon, and she lifted up her little skirt and started playing like she was shooting into her knee, you know, like trying to hit a vein with her crayon. Mm-hmm. And and I looked at that, and I'm like, this has got to stop. Right, yeah. This has got to stop, man. You know, I says, all I could do is pray for them, but right now i got to get out of here mm-hmm. and get mm-hmm. myself away from the This life and these people, you know, but this goes on right now, right here, 18 years later in this world, every day in this country and all over the world and other countries all over. And it doesn't discriminate. You were talking about how people think it's like, uh,
0: members of society that are less
2: desirable Mm -hmm. this disease does not discriminate it's doctors it's lawyers it's priests it's catholics it's christians it's muslims it's jews it's your next door neighbor Mm -hmm. it's the panhandler it's everybody Mm -hmm. and every and then for those people that that have close relatives that are privileged people that are uh ashamed to say Mm -hmm. that it's their loved ones or you know friends or family they're in, they're in a deeper boat than everybody else that, that, that are willing to accept the fact that they, their family member has a disease. Mm. Mm. Are they going to deny their family if mm. they have diabetes? Are they going to deny their family if they have cancer? Mm. No, they're not going to do it. So they shouldn't deny their family wow. or their friend if they have a, a disease, the
0: disease of addiction. You know, it's so funny you bring that up because that's a part I left out so my situation is, and this is funny, people hear this. When they, when people learn we're biracial and that we're half black and we're half Irish, sometimes people's responses are, oh, my God, how the family feel about it? Assuming that my mom's family had a problem with my dad because she married a black man. But uh, surprisingly, my grandparents weren't racist. There's other forms of bigotry in there, but not racist. So they love my dad. Now my dad's family slightly had an issue, and this is why. My father actually came from a working class black family. So and and my dad's the youngest. He's the baby. He was born like twelve years twelve years after Uncle Carl, I think. Uh, I don't know. Something like he's that. Like he's very lot, younger, he a, lot, a younger. lot younger. So yeah. by the time he was coming up, my grandparents were upper middle class. Like they were well off proud black folks and that happened when my mom would try to bring up my mom would try to tell my grandmother that my dad she didn't want to hear it the denial no 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 no, that no can't nobody be. in his family just can't they be. didn't want to hear it but i mean it, there's a lot of layers to that though because there was a lot of pressure on when you're in that especially in that time period and you are a working a black family that's upper middle class that went through hell to get there that stigma and those things you the 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 appearances are they didn't want they didn't want to deal with it so that is what happened like they nobody wanted to hear it and and mind you we lived we moved to Houston and they we didn't it was before the internet so people didn't know what was going like you you might get one phone call a month you know long distance Mm. phone calls cost you god knows how much so people were really kind of not in the know of what kind of situation we were in um, because they didn't see it, and they wanted to keep it on the QT. They wanted to keep it on the QT. So it is; it, it is it's interesting. They, can I ask you a question? What's that? Did they did
2: they start the blame throwing, trying to trying to lay blame on on your dad's problem on other people
0: and uh, other? I see. So I can, I was so young, I don't remember. Because that happens in a lot of families I, I too. I've seen it. I've seen
1: it. I yeah. I, seen I, it.
0: I don't remember. Um, I it, it, no just knowing what I know. Um. I could I could see that. I could definitely see my grandmother was not a fan that my dad chose to marry a poor Irish white girl from upstate New York. <laughs> like, the ideal candidate for him would have been, like, his first wife. And for, I don't know why that marriage ended exactly, but it could have had something to do with it. My uncle told me once that he blamed, yeah, you know what? my uncle did the did the blame cuz when my uncle would talk to me about my dad's addiction he blamed it on his friends he he started hanging out with so and so and getting right. involved in that and so
1: you do hear that a lot and yeah, and even yeah. though we talk like when you're when you're getting clean you do have to leave everything and everyone behind people, places, and things. but that does not n- mean that those people are to blame that's and, right. and i think that's where a lot of parents and um significant others get the scapegoat making it, a
0: scapegoat right
1: because yeah. they don't want to admit that there's that the that the person that they love actually has <laughs> that problem they would rather say oh it's just a bad crowd and it, no i it, no well the, f-
2: the first the first step of the 12 steps of recovery are admitting that you're powerless over your addiction. Yeah. And and that's part of that is, you know, acceptance, you know. You 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 have to admit that you're powerless over it, and that's a very hard thing to do. And that's a very big step to get over.
0: Yeah. 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 So let's so talk to me a little bit more about um and the reason I'm going is because it is like there's so it's like we're talking there's so many different layers, you know, back to that like the alcohol thing. I, and I feel that's what happens. A lot of people don't – they, they find ways to mask the addiction because they're they're doing something else or they're – And alcohol is a drug. Yeah. Oh, I oh yeah. alcohol is absolutely – I got another – So alcohol is – first of all, I am for the decriminalization of drugs. Not because I think they're okay, just because I think that there's a whole other industry there, and I don't think the way you fix the disease is by mass incarceration. And one of the arguments to me is I think the alcohol, the worst stuff I've ever seen people do is when they're on alcohol, is, is people that drink, that shouldn't be drinking. And that's what I learned. So my dad would explain to me that, you know, alcohol um, is he couldn't drink because he would get sick. I never understood it. My mom would socially drink here and there. Not a lot, but she would here and there. My dad never. And I would be like, Dad, how come you don't have a drink? And he'd be like, because if I drink, I'll get sick. Trust me. So I will never forget the time. I was about 17 years old. And my cousin and I, we had the day. My mom had took all the girls off somewhere. And it was just me, my dad, and my cousin, and another one of my friends. And we're like, Dad, want to go to the beach today? And he's like, yeah. And we're like, like, ask your dad to buy us a 30-pack. So, Dad, will you buy us a 30-pack? and he's like all right he's like yeah or he he didn't say all right he said yeah and then we're like and can we get a bottle of liquor and he's like yeah he bought a bottle of liquor and like so i'm like we're driving down and in my mind i'm like my cousin eric in georgia like this is so cool and my mom like this is kind of cool but i'm like are you going to die or something like why are you doing so we go to the beach we drink the beers we drink the alcohol and we're driving we're driving home you know, and we and we watch ocean and have some deep, you know, I have the drunken deep talk with my dad or whatever. He's not drinking, um, because even at that point, I was like, I was like, you you not have a beer, dad? And he's like, No, 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 I can't. I'm good. So then, um, we're driving, and he says, Do you know why I did that today? And I go, Oh, I'm like, Are you dying? And he's like, No, no. He goes, Because I wanted to see how you would handle alcohol. I wanted to see if you were like your mother or if you were like me cuz you were genetic you are wow. genetically predisposed wow. to having this sickness this this gene he's like you're not like me luckily for you he's like you, if you drink alcohol in moderation you'll be okay he's like don't you know in moderation He clarified that. He's like, you know, you don't want to binge drink because that can be dangerous too. But he goes, at least I know you don't have... It doesn't affect you the way it affects me. So, and at the time, I was just kind of like, but as I've grown, I've learned, like, it it really is. Like, you you see the way certain people handle alcohol is, and it's terrible. Like, they have no idea what's going on.
1: Yeah, some people shouldn't not drink. I mean, you... you could argue that nobody should, but there are definitely some people that just, they shouldn't do it. Well, they, they, you can see that. And I feel like it's really, uh, and I don't know. I'm sure there's some science behind this, but it seems like, you know, there's everyone knows somebody who can drink beer, but not liquor. And you can tell, like, you know, you know, you, you know, all those people when they're drinking liquor, you're like, you know, you're like, Oh this okay. is not gonna be. Anywhere this is a good. liquor, and I, I can tell, I can hear it in your voice, I you can see it, and but I think it's hard because alcohol is legal and it's socially accepted. Social, yeah, it's socially acceptable, so it's so easy for people to think that they don't have a problem, or to think that they're they're better than you know this type of addict, and there and there are so many substances that one can abuse. You you can even abuse food, like it there are, it's not just heroin it's not just pills not just coke those are just what people see deem as not as like not as classy or however you Well wanna. the funny
0: thing is is that there's even social there is people who can handle other drugs socially right and don't be and you wouldn't know like mm-hmm. it, there's there's guys working on Wall Street or there's people that are rich and can afford a cocaine habit or 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 not even have it to do it on occasion and their life doesn't spiral in out of it, control. And
1: that's what you call functional <laughs> Exactly. You know, functional, functional
0: addicts, functional yeah. alcoholics. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I'm not that I'm advocating
0: <laughs> to saying that they should you, they should do it, but I'm just saying like there is or I've known people who have used, you know, or binged on a drug or used it and then they just stop on their own right. cold turkey. Right. They're like and I, I, I feel like that they are people who probably don't fall into that category that mm-hmm. d- genetically have there the is, disease. There's
1: definitely, there's not a I one. mean, I don't know,
0: I'm not a doctor, but I'm just saying these are my, like.
1: You're, you're well, up. you
2: were saying before, talking about your dad and, you know, his his death, mm-hmm. okay? There's no death that's really a good death, you know? Not everybody's a Viking, okay? <laughs> and, and, and when it comes especially to alcohol and drugs, even if you're stopped using years and years after, the, the effects of your, your addiction can be the result of your death. Mm-hmm. I can tell you right now that from the time I stopped using 18 years ago, okay, there, the friends that I had that I hung out with, most of them are dead. There's a few in prison. Most of them are dead. Two of them died this past week, okay? Uh, they had cancer. I'm not sure what organs they were because I just got to town and learned about this last night, okay But I have many friends that died in active addiction of alcohol from alcohol. you know their hearts exploding, their livers exploding, esophageal ulcers. their doctors would tell them you could take that one sip of alcohol and it would it will explode in your throat and you will bleed and choke on your own blood and that would happen. And these are people that would have to go to bed with a drink on their nightstand because they'll wake up in the middle of the night with the DTs so bad that if they didn't take a drink, they would, you know, they they needed to take a drink or they they keep shaking. You mm-hmm. know, they they, they needed the drink to stop shaking. Yeah. and know, and these are people that are not with us anymore. Yeah. You know, Is, and
0: they, isn't it true um Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it true that alcohol is the only substance that it once you become an addict to it, like a full-blown alcoholic, where you're drinking like all day, every day, you can die if you stop? Once your body goes through a system,
2: you can go through withdrawals and DTs. I'm not a medical professional, I can't say it's the only one. I don't know that. I do know from experience and going to meetings for 18 years and and befriending a lot of recovering alcoholics that a lot of them had to go through detoxification processes before they went through the rehabilitation processes where they had to be medically detoxified
1: i think i'm pretty sure i think i've i thought that about alcohol as well that you can't just quit cold turn like when
0: you when you get to that point and that's why i saying there's the layers of addiction and the way it works like with alcoholism where people and, – and I think that's where the problem is because some people think, oh, well, if you're – you're not an alcoholic unless you're like, you know, old Johnny down the block who yeah, wakes yeah. up and drinks all yeah. day long and, and, and has cirrhosis of the liver and everything else.
2: Heroin addicts right now that uh, may, you know, have that moment of clarity that, you know, or else – they do something and get arrested, and the court says you better have a moment of clarity, have to go through a medical detoxification process, too. And believe it or not, they use other drugs that could I end know. up more harmful it's, to them. Right, yeah, that's you, a... You know, it's so... And, 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 you know, before, the, before they could um, start the rehab process, and, you know, we're talking about this rehab process, and I'm talking about being clean for 18 years. I've been clean for 18 years. I've probably only been sober-minded 16 or 15 of those years. The first three years I didn't use, but I didn't know how to live. I didn't know. I was still out of my mind. I really was. You know, I didn't know how to think straight. When I first met you, I was still crazy. I think you were like
0: three years at that point, right? When I first met you, I you I was
2: like eight months clean. Was it eight months? Yeah, I thought you told me two,
0: or maybe I'd known you. I was like, okay, I don't think I'd already known you. I a was year. only
2: like eight months clean. Yeah, you know, and and when I yeah when I first met you, um, I'll say it. We were in school together. Yeah, and and I I set a goal for myself as a, as a suggestion from my sponsor at the time. He says, make a short term goal and a long term goal, and I says, well, I want to do something with my life, so I went back to college and 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 i says uh, my short-term goal is to get an a on a test you know <laughs> And my long, but and, and 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 also to finish the semester my long-term goal is to get the you know my degree and and i got an a on my first test and i'm like you know what if i could get clean i could do anything man anything because this is the hardest thing i've ever had mm-hmm. to do in my life you know but it, it's it's Still the hardest thing you have to do mm-hmm. in your life. And we need to help those people out there that that need to get clean. And that's everybody that's using, man. Right. That's everybody. Right. You know, this isn't about me. This isn't about you. This is about, this is about, if this radio show right here helps one person live instead of dying in a gutter or dying on somebody's porch or dying under a bridge, then this was successful. Mm-hmm one person mhm one I person
1: agree. i just think that um to i think it's important to do um things like this obviously you know this the discussion we're having and um there are a lot of discussions going around since since the um since the opioid addiction like the epidemic has become so um it, prevalent i i think it's increasing and the coverage of it is also increasing i i mean i i'm 24 years old i graduated seven years ago and i it's sad to say there are people that i went to high school with that i can't even recall if they're alive or dead anymore because i've heard of people overdosing and some of them have passed away and some of them haven't, some in, or they've overdosed more than once. And, you know, you just, it's sad to me because every time, every time it's, I'm like, this is so sad. Like this has to stop, but it's, they're just so many. So, and I used to be that person that was very like, you know, it's your problem. You made a choice. Like, yeah, I would never do that. But I think one of the, the biggest, uh, like the. Mind like the thing that opened my mind the most was realizing that people who are uh, living within their addiction, they're not acting as a they're like as you or you or I sober. They they're living addicted, and that uh, getting the fix is the only thing that matters. So when you hold an addict to your own standards, and like if somebody you know commits a crime and you say. Well, they're they're idiots. How could they not know better? How couldn't they know that they're going to get caught? I that's there's no point in asking questions like that because they're not functioning as a, a sober person. In most person.
2: cases, they can't control themselves. And
1: and it's like when when you have an addiction, you have that unsatiable desire to to get a fix. So that's why people are robbing places that they're going to get caught. That's why they're stealing money from their parents or their girlfriends. And I, like I said before, I'm, I'm not saying it's an excuse. I'm saying it's an explanation. And to ask questions like why or to pass judgments, it's just pointless. There's no point. So I just hope that the conversation turns away from like a, a judgmental like a judgment or you know bashing and turns more towards a constructive like okay, so what do we do? And I, I mean, I think that once this uh, society as a whole decides, like collectively, to say, "Okay, like let's fix this," then maybe, maybe we'll see a decline, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's the goal. But you have to get people to that point where they're willing to be to to help and to be open-minded.
2: Exactly, exactly. And 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 you know, the moms and dads and brothers and sisters and people out there that have family and friends that are in active addiction. You know, if, if you ask them if they've been victims of their active addicts and they say yes, fine. You know, if you ask them if, 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 if they'll forget about all that as long as that person can get clean, you know, then, and you're willing to let things go. You know, because, you know, part of the process of getting clean and sober is making amends. Someday down the road, they'll be fine. A good, loving person that cares about that addict will let it go as long as they get their life back on track. And that's, that's what matters. You know, if you get their life back on track, I mean, I don't know if it was my kid, you know, having experienced what I've experienced in my life, and they were active in addiction, and they wronged me and burned a bridge with me in one way or another. All I would care about is that they got healthy again because it's a sickness, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't care if I got anything back, You know, my experience with my mom and dad, yes, I, I, I wronged them, you know, but in my, in working through my steps, I made amends to them both financially and emotionally, you know, and I felt that I had to do it for my sake and for them. Mm -hmm. And, and they were back in my life. I'm grateful to say that, you know, I, you know, they both have passed away, but, but, before they passed away, they saw me clean and sober, and I made amends to them, you know, both emotionally and spiritually and financially. And any parent who has a, a son or daughter or brother or sister or any loved one in active addiction would be more than happy for them to do that and just, you know, get clean. Put everything else aside. Forgiveness.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want my loved one back. Yeah, you know, get healthy, just like. And, w- and what about? So it was funny, brother, because I remember when we were talking. You mentioned on the show before. And we'd actually talked about this in the pre-conversation w- when you were like setting yourself up to relapse. When you were talking about, um, it, we're, do, do you think it's like this? Is what popped in my head because I remember. Um, when i you know studied the treatment program and i had to go through the even though i didn't have a substance abuse addiction it's no secret i had some issues with the state and part of that was i had to go through the drug treatment and it really did help me though because the steps even though i was evaluated and they were, and it determined i didn't have substance abuse those steps helped me a lot cuz they could apply to the other just the mindset like there's certain s- sicknesses of the mind and that Re- lead to addiction i feel like if you have those sicknesses of the mind and you have the genetic predisposition that's how you know some at it, it you know where it caused where you spiral out spiral out of control with the substance abuse but one of the things i learned is is that accepting that some of the people you make amends with some of them are irreparable and that you just then, then you got to kind of accept that then correct you know
2: what? in my in my opinion
0: Usually, you, like relationships you, you and stuff as the like addict,
2: that. Did your best to, to uh, amend that. Yeah. And and you have to be able to live with that. It's the other person's choice. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And and I, that's what I actually kind of think of because, um, given the history of our parents, I have been in a situation where somebody that I loved came. They came to me and told confessed that they had an addiction and at that point it was too late and if anything the addiction made it more like that that uh confirmation that there was an addiction was almost what sealed what sealed the deal if it wasn't already sealed before because i wanted that person to get clean i wanted them to get their life back but i didn't want to be there to see it because all in my I in my journey in life I don't want to be my mom and I don't want to I personally just am you know I've been through that enough just growing up that the way that I did and it was my choice to say I wish you the best and good luck but I'm not going to be there at the end and I got a lot of judgment for that and I was fine with that you know people are ultimately they're individuals and you can't ex- expect anybody to do or you know do what you want them to do, and in a situation like that, I think the bridges the bridges were burnt, and there was there was no going back. And at this point, I mean, it's 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 in the past, and it are, it happened. But I know that there are people who think that I you know I did something wrong by not seeing it through, and well, I I think that's I think that's unfair. And that situation. is unfair.
2: I think Verano. A lot of uh, people don't understand that an active addict, when he comes forth like that, that's the beginning of them probably seeing that they're 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 at their bottom, okay. And but what they don't see is that they don't have to do it alone, okay. All the, they feel an overwhelming sense of hopelessness. And, and like most addicts, they feel like they're backed into a corner and the floor is closing in on them and they're going to fall. Okay? at, but at the, an, the, the beginning of the process is learning that, okay, you might have gotten yourself into this mess, but you don't have to get out of it alone. Mm-hmm. And the first person... That the addict will naturally go to is a loved one when, in my opinion, and this is strictly my opinion, the first person that they should go to is another addict that's a healthy, recovering addict, mm-hmm. okay? And no active addict is going to get clean without asking for help because if you don't ask, you don't want it. Mm -hmm. you know nobody could want somebody to get clean and and make them clean right you made the right choice i commend you
1: Mm -hmm. you
2: know i i I, it sounds to me like this person meant an awful lot to you right and and you made an excellent choice by making the choice you did because i'm certain you really wanted the best for this person but you couldn't you couldn't Make them clean. They had to make that choice for themselves. Exactly,
1: and I and that's why it's because I've had such a. I mean, I think it's part of just growing into an adult and having life experience and growing more empathetic and compassionate as a human. But because my my personal point of view on addiction has changed so much from a child, um, and then dealing with the anger and the confusion, and then and the judgment ultimately. I have, you know, it's totally changed for me, um, through my experiences where I know lo- I don't judge addicts heart, like in a negative way anymore. I don't, I just seek to understand. And I think that people who may have known me, you know, even five years ago would have seen a different person, uh, a different opinion from me. So That's why I'm, that's why I think it's so important to have those conversations. Cause I know what, you know, I get it. I get why people feel the way that they feel and why they say the things that they say. But I do, that's like what I, like how, what I said before, I just think that it's counterproductive and it it does, it's just pointless to come from that, you know, come from that place of where you don't want to understand. You just want to kind of say it, you know, you, it's a choice. You made a mistake and. That's why I guess that's why it's important how we, you know, we talk about it on the show, the difference between the fact and opinion, because Mm -hmm. as it stands, the facts say and, you know, the American Medical Association does say it is a disease. And I think that that's where we should really be.
0: I, I think what I think what to summarize on that, though, is it is kind of like what I was saying to you, because, like, for instance, you'll see people in those situations where they're like, I get clean and then. I think where you said the mind where then they try to get back the person that they lost for a lot of times I it, it's in different ways, but a lot of times you it's, get back the life that they it's had. usually like the, a significant other that you lost as a, as a result of your addiction and you're trying to get them back, but they, they're not. And what tends, what I've seen happen in certain situations is that person will try to use that. They'll, go back and relapse or they'll be like oh and so in my mind I'm like you never really truly were getting clean for the right reasons because you or, or you know um so my so my testament so in so in other words like to touch on that like what about The people, you know, moving forward with making amends, like admitting that you're wrong, owning the things that you've done wrong and attempting to make amends, but being able to accept the fact that, you know, there's some, if, if you were drunk and high and you put your girlfriend in the hospital or did some crazy, something beyond where it was too destructive and the person is not, just can't have you in their life, owning that and moving on, that that's kind of the situation, you know?
2: Well, <clears throat> excuse me, mm-hmm. It is part of the steps, the eighth, the eighth step of recovery reads that we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And, and, and to describe that step, it says, here you assess all the ways you could have possibly caused harm to others and also to yourself. Also to yourself, that's very important. And you then make yourself ready to restore these relationships Through both words and actions. Okay. And that step sets you up for the ninth step. Which says we may direct amends to such people wherever possible. Except when to do so would injure them or others. And that's very important how those two fall in place with each other. Because you can can do more harm than good if you're not ready to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, Unless you're ready to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's why the steps are in order. Yeah. You know, that's, that's
1: awesome. Why, that's really that's really like that's cool. I'd never even I guess I've never looked at the steps of recovery. I didn't know. I think you the, know the, the, like I said
0: the 12 steps are really powerful tools right. not only for substance abusers but they I I think that they are powerful. Like I said, I've used them in my life and I still do daily. Like I had my own issues that I had to change in right. my life from you know, just changing my way from stinking thinking, as they have it, and 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 things that I was doing. That though it wasn't substance abuse, it was equally as dangerous. I lost a lot because of it. Um, so, I you know, I think the te- the the the, st- the twelve steps themselves are very powerful. Yeah,
1: I I think it's really cool because I mean, this is the first time I've ever had a conversation with some with a. And a person who has actually gone through rehab and has been clean for as long as you have, you know, I know plenty of people who have kind of, you know, uh, you know, here and there, but I don't think I've ever actually spoken with somebody who really like committed and f- coming from coming from somebody f- my age. Like I said, I'm 24 and I know so many people who have passed away. I know so many people who are fighting addictions right now and friends friends of friends family members so for somebody my age i would like to know like what what would you tell the people that are maybe listening who need help or who know someone who needs help like how do you do it like how do you what's your advice
2: don't fight it don't fight the addiction the addiction will always win you surrender you gotta surrender to a program that will help you or that, that, that you could apply to your life. I surrendered to a twelve step program. Okay. I know many, many people that have been successful and becoming clean and living a sober lifestyle by surrendering to a program that they've applied in their life and they've changed their life and and they've been very successful at it. I know many people that have been unsuccessful because they said the program didn't work for me but those people that worked the program that they surrendered to were successful the program's not going to work for you if you think it's something you could subscribe to like an app it's not going to work you have to go ahead you have to put one foot in front of the other and you have to make it work you know you have to work it excuse me you have to work it but you know you were talking about Matthew, you know, to, to add on to this about, uh, what motivates you to even do that, right? Uh, earlier you were talking about that for, for me early on, and this was the beginning of my surrendering, you know, to got me to that point where I was going to surrender was, you know, my little girl started calling me by my name instead of daddy, you know, and, and, and that had to stop. You know, I wanted her to call me by my name again. Ideally, when a person surrenders and, and wants to get clean, ideally you're doing it for yourself. But if it takes something else, like your family or your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your daughter, your son, then let that be it until you're ready for yourself to do it for yourself. Um, but stop fighting the addiction. You know, those who fight it always lose the drugs and the booze always win because it's your brain chemistry's already rewired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And eighteen years. So how old were you then when you started? Do you want me to
2: give you my age? Is <laughs> that what you're doing? I never I, ask a lady her age. I just want some <laughs> perspective for
1: you know for people who are.
2: When I when I first tried recovery, I was thirty six years old. Okay and uh no I wasn't I was 38 years old
1: okay yeah yeah so I mean that's 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 awesome that's really I was really 38 awesome.
2: years old yeah
0: I said I know I I know how old you were when I met you cuz I remember being like wow I didn't cuz I didn't think you looked that old <gasps> at the time hey yeah.
2: 8 months clean at the time yeah old. yeah I'm <laughs> 18 years now. The yeah. brain cells are still growing
1: you back. You had the Tony Soprano you know.
2: shirts, no, man. You're killing it. <laughs> yeah, Hawaiian still, shirt that's every day.
1: Awesome. That, I mean. Geez, but
2: don't don't get me wrong. This this cunning, baffling, and powerful disease. I had friends, and still they're still my friends in in recovery. That had 20, 25 years plus. That just on a whim went out and used.
1: Right. You know. Yeah.
2: I have one that's dead. That had 25 plus years. Died. Mm -hmm. First time of years after 25 years clean. This disease is the devil, Mm -hmm. man. You know? Um, So how do you do do it? How do you stay clean? I don't use. Mm -hmm. That's the first rule. Don't use. Mm -hmm. Um, Second rule is I talk to an addict every day. If I can't make a meeting, I talk to an addict every day. And I can only keep what I have by giving it away. Mm -hmm. Like being here right now. Right. Talking to you guys right and talking you know to to people that want to get clean, you know that's the only way
0: and I guess uh what finally what what advice do you have for families of addicts like how do you how do you handle the situation if you have someone that is a loved one that is an addict and and that's using right now love them
2: Love them. Give them tough love if you have to. If you're out there and you have a loved one that's sick, I'm here to tell you, I was very sick. And when I was told I had a disease, a lot of the terrible things that I did as a result of my addiction that I couldn't help myself doing, I wouldn't say I felt vindicated because I knew I wasn't vindicated, but it sure explained a lot to me.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it does to me. I mean, with my father, that's why I said, like, my dad was, uh, my dad was, like I said, he was a great dad until his addiction. And, and there there was one point <laughs> for me that affected me forever that was the experience and and i don't know if that had a on my dad's decision to go to rehab because it was shortly after but there was a point where my my dad my mom would make my dad take someone with him to because she's like well i know if he has one of the kids with him he won't go use drugs so one time when he had to work on a saturday my mom was like oh you're gonna take matt with you now to me i was just excited because I was going with my dad to work. I was like, I get to go to work with my dad. Yeah, this is cool. And I remember I went to get in the car with him. And um, we, we go to leave. We pull. And as we get down the street, he goes, oh, shoot. I forgot my elevator key. He goes back to the house. He goes, run in and, and get the elevator key off the counter. I got out to run to the door. And when I got out and got to the door, he pulled off and drove off. And we didn't see him for like, I don't know, it was a couple of days. But that mo- I'll never forget that moment. I was I was shattered, never expected my dad to do something like that. And that's when my mom explained to me, like, it's the drugs. And um, I remember him, like, apologizing and things like that. But uh, I do think that he, I feel like always in my, Mind, I don't know if it was the actual thing because I was seven, but I always felt like maybe that was the reason he went to get better, you know, because because I know that my my this is not my dad, right, my dad. My dad, my dad would never do something like that, right, on his own. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 that was he had to get right. his addiction. Mm-hmm.
2: He had to get
1: right, and that's why when when people ask questions like you, know, how could you do that? That's how. That that is how you know? exactly,
2: you yeah. know. You, you, I hate it. I absolutely resent it. Hate it when when people call addicts that make poor decisions about things low lifes, mm-hmm. but they don't understand because they haven't walked in their shoes. They haven't been put in that position where, you know, for instance, the the children thing. You're talking about your dad. That's a very common thing with addicts, you know, like to leave their babies crying in cribs with wet diapers and things like that. Or to, you know, in your case, things like uh, the the abandonment, Mm -hmm. you know, that's Mm -hmm. unfortunately one of the things that happens because and especially these days with with a lot of these newer drugs my god i've been clean 18 years i can't believe how many drugs that are out there that that exist now that weren't around when i got clean oh man it's bad it's bad so out much there.
0: Ha- just this week the other day you had this guy go run over 23 people in times square and he said he smoked weed lace with pcp which I, I guess that my, that may be it, but I, the first thing that popped in my head was like, oh, he's high on K2, which is See, this. When I got yeah. clean, there was no K2. Yeah. There was no ecstasy. There was, none of
2: there was there was no, no uh, Mike's hard soda. There was none of these uh, flavored yeah. uh, liquor drinks and none of that stuff. Mm-hmm. you know
0: And it, it's and, dangerous now too, because like she said with the the influx in opiates, you know, yeah. opiates are so dangerous because they kill you. You can die so easily, overdose on them, like mm. m- any o- more than any other drug. I think. Well, I, I don't want to say that I'm not an expert, but I do. Th- I, I know to some degree they are high up. Well, there. what
2: happens is, uh, and from my personal experience with a lot of heroin addicts that I knew that have overdosed, they they you build they build a tolerance up okay and then they that makes them want to do more Mm -hmm. and the purity gets better of Mm -hmm. the drug and they still want to do more but still their human body can only take so much yeah and and then then the the you know yeah it it eventually the eventuality happens you know that they they overdose and and if they're fortunate they'll get an ems with narcan yeah you know, I mean, and that's another big issue right now is is the Narcan. You know, is are there are there, are there municipalities and states and counties are they going to keep funding Narcan because there are uh, there are people out there that are arguing that if they don't have EpiPens in EMS uh, vehicles, why should they have Narcan? And it's all because of that stigma mm-hmm. that all. Addicts that require Narcan are less desirable on the social ladder, but Mm -hmm. people that need um, epipens are more desirable on the social ladder. You know, and nothing could be farther from the truth.
1: No, Mm. Uh, it's everybody deserves to be saved. I I think. I mean, I
2: absolutely.
1: And Mm. that is like that's the job of uh, the medical responders is to revive a person if they can and it's not treatment it's not rehab it's like you know you can't compare it to giving away chemotherapy for free it's not that it's just saving a life and the the stigma that an addict isn't worth saving is i think it's sad and Mm. hopefully we can change that change that thought because there are a lot of people who have lost loved ones and children and I don't I, I'm sure that life was worth saving to that person so mm-hmm. hopefully through this you know this show and the keep the conversation going and we're gonna link the resources but you know hopefully we can move towards some real change and I mean all of us here would love for anybody who's listening or um, who has an addiction or who knows someone, loves someone who has an addiction, we would love for you to get help. Because, and, you know, like you have said, just don't fight it. Just get the help and hopefully get your life back, you know. Surrender.
2: Mm -hmm. Don't fight. Surrender. Mm -hmm. Surrender to a 12-step program. Mm -hmm. You know, that's my suggestion. That's what worked for me. There are other programs out there besides 12-step programs, Mm -hmm. you know. I'm not sitting here trying to be a twelve-step Nazi, but that's what worked for me.
1: Yeah, and and you know, like you didn't you didn't sugarcoat it at all when you said how you started. You you liked the way it felt, and you liked the the um, the the numbness. And I think that's important to hear because here you are, and you know you're still with us, and you're still every single day making that choice, and you're not sugarcoating it for anybody, but you're saying, you know, do it. You know, you, you, you don't have any regrets, right? <laughs> like, no, but you it, have
2: to do the work. Yeah, exactly. You, you, it's not going to happen through osmosis. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to put the one foot in front of the other.
1: And and I and that, I think that with not to not to date anybody, but I think with the generational difference between like the the kids my age who are addicted, I really think that a lot of them don't think realize how big of a deal it is. I don't think that they are fully aware that, you know, this is, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's, this is serious. You know, you need help. You need,
2: well, you know, it's a program of progress, not perfection. Mm -hmm. I, it took some people, it takes two or three runs through rehab or two or three recoveries before Mm -hmm. one sticks,
1: but just do want, you know, just start somewhere, but
2: you have to start somewhere. Yeah. You know, if, if you think If you're out there and you're an addict and you're using and you feel hopeless and you think, I can't ever have 18 years clean like this guy, you know, well, you know what? Maybe you can, but maybe the first time you'll only have a week clean. Maybe Mm -hmm. the second time you'll have three weeks or four weeks clean. Who knows? Maybe it'll only take one time for you to get 18 20 30 years the rest of your life clean mm-hmm. you know but it's a program of progress it's all up to you it's how much work you put into it it's what you it's how bad you want a life mm-hmm. it's how bad you want to step out of the of the shadow that you're in mm-hmm. you know uh, how bad you want to get away from that dragon man that sleeping dragon that's always going to be sleeping on your shoulder mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. wake up that phoenix you know, rise from the ashes. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what it's all about, man. Yeah. You know, you 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 have a chance to live. You know, it doesn't matter if you're 24, 14, mm-hmm. 44, 54. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew a crackhead that got clean at 72.
0: Wow, wow. That's awesome. 72 years old. Wow, yeah, that yeah. Is. Yev, man, thanks, man. I, I, I'm, I'm. I'm so happy that you that you were here to share with us and share with the listeners and man I think I don't think I can really put a value on what you what you really bring to the table well, here. Well,
2: thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: I hope I really do. I hope that, you know, that that somebody anybody listening even if you're an addict or not an addict and you understand and for those of the people that are critics like that I see that are like, "Oh, it's it's, it's a choice, not a disease." And I hope you understand like I get where some people are coming from. If so, you know, if you see people making excuses and constantly doing stuff, we're not advocating for enabling someone who refuses to get help. But just understand that this is a disease. It's it's it is a disease by classification, by definition. And now hopefully you've gained some perspective. This is just the beginning. I'm sure that unfortunately we're going to have to do more episodes on this because it's. It would be nice if it would just stop tomorrow, but it's probably not going to happen. No. And we're always going to be, as you know, this is something that my family uh, has personal attachment to and something that is, you know, very common in this our society. So we're going to always do what we can to be involved in the fight. Um, Any last words, Steve?
2: I love you guys, man, uh, and I love what you're doing here and you're right the message has to keep going and if this reaches out to so much as one addict one kid one adult anybody who is if their life is saved by just one life is saved by this show fine i'd love to see 100 lives saved by this show mm-hmm. or more you know but i i hate i hate the disease of addiction mm-hmm. i know how mm-hmm. ugly it can be and i know how many lives can be affected by one active addict mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um I I would hope that you do more shows because you're absolutely correct. And anytime you want me to come back and join you, I will be more than happy to.
0: I'm gonna hold you to that. All right, Remember buddy. You guys heard he said that. You got <laughs>
1: it, man. Yeah. So I think uh, uh in the in the link with well, the link to the radio show, we'll we will post resources and we'll also post um our email and. We're on all social media. We have Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and SoundCloud. So um, if anybody wants to reach out, you know, have any comments, any questions, any opinions, feel free to get a hold of us.
0: So any of our listeners that have comments on today's show, any questions about today's show, um, if you want a suggestion for something you'd like to hear us talk about, If you'd like to be a guest on our show, send us an email, T-I-L-I Truth Radio at gmail.com.
1: And we are also on Instagram and Twitter, T-I-L-I Truth Radio. That's at T-I-L-I Truth Radio. And uh, you can find us on Facebook. It's uh, Telling It Like It Is Official Radio Show.
0: And that's going to do it for our show telling it like it is is produced by matt ely veronica ely and zara vignola and um yeah we're not democrats we're not republicans we're not liberals we're not conservatives we are realists, and we're always telling it like it is